an easy tip is to learn to start shooting the line through your fingers and always having control. So go from pinching your fingers to making a loop with your fingers and letting the line shoot through it. And you can actually use that to kind of feather that that cast down to not overshoot the fly past that fish and to soften the landing of that fly. But when you do that, you instantly are ready to start stripping and you never took your eyes off of that fish. That was John Mauser with a sweet fly casting tip for salt. A powerful story on following your passion today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Please take a quick moment uh, and share this episode with one other person who you think needs a few saltwater tips. Maybe you know somebody who's heading out on the water or has been talking about it. John uh, brings some good stuff today on the show. We have John Mauser, guide, fly rod founder, and super cool dude uh, to share his powerful story today. We find out about a sweet uh, double haul tip he has for us how he builds his leaders in the right line for short and long casting situations. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsor. Togan's Fly Shop, providing superior products at an affordable price. An amazing resource for fly tying materials, tools, and fishing accessories. Since 2005, Togan's has been over delivering on price, service, and passion. And now it's time to discover the Togan's buzz for yourself. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash tokens to get started today. You support this podcast by clicking over to take a look at tokens online. That's wetflyswing.com slash tokens, T-O-G-E-N-S. Tokens. Did I mention uh, we're digging into redfish today? So without further ado, here is John Mauser from mauserflyfishing.com. How's it going, John? I'm doing great, Dave. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for making the time this morning to to dig into this. We uh, we're going to dig into a little bit on, on your the company you have going. Uh, you know, I've heard definitely a lot about the rods you guys are building there. But uh, I also wanted to dig into uh, some on redfish, maybe some other species. But uh, before we get there, talk about how you first got into fly fishing. Sure. Um, it, it's kind of a two part story for me, I guess. Um, I've been fly fishing since I'm 40 years old now. So I've been fly or I've been fishing since I was five years old. Um, and you know, we started off like most people, bluegill and bass under a bobber with a cricket or a worm. Uh, and this was in Northeastern North Carolina. So we fished the rivers and the sounds in that part of the state. Um, so my dad got me into fishing and then probably when I was around 10 years old, I remember, uh, I think it was in the Kmart, went in the store with my mom and you know, when you're a kid and you're into fishing, the first thing you do when you go into a, you know, a store like that is you get hit for the fishing tackle aisle. And I uh, went down there and I was looking at the, you know, the bass lures and and all the rods and stuff. And I saw they had a small fly rod section. And I, I mean, I knew about fly fishing somewhat, but I had never seen one. And I was just, I was all struck with it. So it was probably $30 and I, I talked my mom into it. So, you know, this is around 1990. Um, it was probably just a Shakespeare, you know, five, six weight probably an eight foot rod, um, with a cheap click reel on it and a level line wine or level line on it. And, uh, got that. And it came with some foam spiders and some little poppers and try to teach myself, uh, fly fishing. So probably for a couple of years after that, um, I was all about fly fishing for bass and bluegill on the lily pads and the, the cypress tree stumps, um, in Northeastern North Carolina. 
And I think probably when I was about 15, I got really into bass fishing. And then I started getting into saltwater fishing because we were only an hour from the Outer Banks. And uh, that kind of took over fly fishing for me. And I still fly fished a little bit, but not so much. And then um, future, you know, forward a job that I started uh, uh, with a public aquarium about 20 years ago, I met a gentleman who was really into saltwater fly fishing. And uh, he kind of, you know, we started fishing together and he, he showed me what an eight weight rod was and, and what he was doing with redfish and speckled trout and false albacore and things like that. And it didn't take me long to get hooked. So um, that was kind of my second introduction to fly fishing or at least saltwater fly fishing. So, um, so about 15, 20 years ago, I got back into it and it's just been all downhill since there. Nice. And we're going to dig into uh, a little more on that saltwater fishing, but I just want to hear a little bit about the, um, you know, the Mauser uh, fly fishing and the rod company. Talk about how, you know, when that happened, when you had this idea to start, you know, a, a, a company here. Sure. It's a, it's a long story and I'm going to try to condense it as much as possible for you. Um, so basically I, I've always wanted to do something um, with fish, with the ocean um, since the time I was a little kid. Um, I ended up going to school for marine biology, and I started working for a public aquarium here in North Carolina um, around 2004, um, and that was the, kind of my dream job. Um, it was a state government aquarium, so you know it didn't pay a bunch, but it was awesome. I got to swim with sharks. I got to go out collecting angelfish. I got to work with rattlesnakes and train otters and all kinds of cool stuff, um, but a couple of years after that, um, I had gotten married. We had our first child. And, uh, you know, we need a little bit more money than we, than we had it at that point. So I started my first side hustle. Basically I started my guide service about 10, 11 years ago. And so at that point I was guiding and trying to build a kind of a, a weekend and holiday niche business based around saltwater fly fishing here in coastal North Carolina. And so that kind of just continued to grow my interest in, in fly fishing and, and, and putting people on fish and, uh, that job, um, just kind of about six or seven years ago, just started really going downhill for me. Um, opportunities, you know, things changed. Opportunities started to go away. I felt more and more in a box there. Um, I'm real big on achievement and growth and fulfillment, and it just wasn't happening for me. And it just it got to the point where I just went into complete depression. And I think if I hadn't figured something out, I you know, I probably would not be here today. So. We were kind of struggling and my wife and I and our kids figuring out, you know, what we could do. We could pick up and, and move somewhere else and look for a job at another public aquarium because that's what I'd been doing for so many years. Or I could full-time guide. And it just, you know, I, we looked at our options and I decided the thing I really wanted to do, the thing that would really challenge me was to stay right here in our hometown in, in coastal North Carolina and build a business here. And there was really no option for me other than building something in the fly fishing industry. Um, I'd been guiding. I had enough connections um, with other companies in the industry. And I said, you know, I think we can do this. So around 2016, we started trying to figure out how we could pr produce, you know, on a small level um, fly rods here in North Carolina. So, you know, we went the whole route of, you know, I checked with some of the Chinese manufacturers um, we looked into um, South Korea as a manufacturer. We always knew we wanted to build the rods here. Um, Swansboro is the town we live in in North Carolina. So we knew we wanted to build those rods here, but we're, you know, we don't have a million dollars to spend on equipment as a startup company, nor do we have the experience to 
compete with companies that have been designing and rolling blanks for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. So, you know, we looked into China. It just, it didn't sit right with us after we had, or after I had talked to them. It just, it didn't feel right for what we wanted to do. We looked into South Korea for blank manufacturing. Uh, they make some fantastic blanks, but it still didn't feel right for us. And just through a, a, a series of fortunate events in 2016, we were connected with a USA um, rod blank rolling company um, that we just hit it off. And they were very kind to us and, and allowed us to start producing rod blanks through them um, in small batches, which allowed us to be able to afford to make that happen. Um, and we've been working with them ever since. So, you know, that was kind of the start of it. That's the hardest part is finding someone to um, produce your rod blanks. And then from there, it just comes down to, you know, sourcing out the best components possible, the the best cork you can get your hands on, the 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 best guides, the best reel seats, and then, you know, really putting your time into the fit and finish of those rods and just trying to produce the best thing possible. Um, you know, when it came to building rods, I, I realized that the market's pretty saturated. And so there's two things that I have to do. Um, well, three things probably. One, build the best product we can possibly build. Um, so whether it's something somebody can afford or not, I want them to cast that rod and just go, wow, that's that's an amazing rod. I want this rod, you know, versus saying I cast okay and I can afford it. Um, and then the second thing is to, you know, one at a time build relationships with with the anglers, with the customers. People people support their friends and buy from their friends. So, you know, that that process of building friendships with every single angler um, that may or may not buy a rod from us and then keeping those relationships going. And then the third ingredient, you know, was time. You know, it's like this, there's no, no, nothing good in life, you know, that, that, that you're really proud of building happens overnight. So just realizing that you have to be aggressive and, and, and everything you do to build that business, but no, it's going to take some time. So that's, that's kind of how, you know, that's where we're at now. And that's kind of how the business came along. That's great. That's a great story. I, uh, if we have time, maybe we'll dig a little more into some of that. I did want to touch, you mentioned, um, you know, kind of the side hustle. I'm curious, how how was it, uh, take us to that moment when you uh, kind of moved off from your, from the day job into the full-time rod. Was that a, like a quick, was that like jumping off a, a deal or how, how did all that go? So basically, you know, we, we made a decision when we started the rod company that, okay, I'm working 40 hours a week at a full-time job. I'm also guiding and now I'm starting a rod company. So, you know, I think somewhere in there that calculates about two or three hours a night you get to sleep, um, you know, along with spending time with your, you know, your wife and kids and, and try, there's, there's no balance in that. It's just, this is what we're, we're going to have to really grind it for a few years. And, and basically what, what I decided with my family was I'm going to continue to grow the guiding and I'm going to continue to grow the rod company until we get to the point where they plateau out and I can't do any more with them, I can't grow them anymore. And also the point where they can support us that I can walk away from a 40 hour a week job. And, you know, we didn't know exactly how quick that was going to happen. And it took a few years. Um, but you know, when we got to that point and honestly, COVID last year is as horrible a thing as it is. Um, it really helped our companies a lot. Um, as far as people wanting to get outdoors. So it helped the guide service and it helped, you know, rod sales. And so that was just the point where last year we said, okay, we, we can do this now. And, uh, and we just made the call and, and it was just one of the scariest things I've ever done is to walk away from, you know, a 15 year career 
with a guaranteed paycheck that was unfulfilling though, and step into something where you're going to be challenged every day and you're running huge risk, but also the rewards are there and, and not rewards financially, but re- rewards as far as uh, mental health and, and happiness and, and being c- in control of your own schedule. So, um, you know, we made that leap, but um, no regrets whatsoever. It's been, you know, overall mental health and happiness. It's, it's, it's the happiest I've ever been. Um, it is, it's still stressful. There's anxiety every single day with running your own companies. Um, but being in control of your life, you know, it's it, life short. So, you know, I didn't want to look back with regrets. So that that's probably the biggest driver is that, you know, I woke up every day and I said, you might die today. Like you don't, you're going to die someday. How long do you have to go do these things that are tugging on your heart that you really want to do? And the answer is you don't know. So you go for it so that, you know, when it's all said and done, you can look back and, and say, Hey, you know, I taught my kids to, you know, go for something they, they want to do and believe in themselves. You know, I, I taught myself that, you know, you know, you're worth, worth chasing those dreams and, and hopefully help a bunch of people along the way, or at least a few people. Um, so there was a lot of stuff that, and a lot of self-talk and a lot of sleepless nights to, to make that jump. Um, but it's probably one of the best decisions we've made. That's amazing. Yeah, I think um, I can't remember the number. I think it's something like twenty thousand or forty thousand hours, or some number that we have in our lives. I, oh, yeah. th- there's a um, I can't remember who it was. Somebody I was listening to uh, has like literally has a like a, a a countdown clock on his desk that shows how many hours he has to to, to live, which is kind of morbid, but. It puts it in perspective, right? If you look at it and you're like, oh my gosh, I've actually only got 40,000 hours left or whatever it is. Um, yeah. I, better, I better make every minute count today, right? It's, it's, a very, it's a very powerful thing to know that you're not immortal and you don't have forever and you don't know how long, how, how much more sand is in that hourglass before it runs out. And, you know, a lot of people live that, you know, that, that thought process of I'll do it next week. I'll do it next year. I'll do it when I retire you don't know what you have, you know, and that, that's not just building a company. I mean, that's, you know, going on that vacation you've dreamed about or, you know, doing whatever, like nobody's guaranteed that time. So, you know, it's, it's better to take that risk and fail at it than to just wait. And then it's too late and you look back and realize you could have, but you did not. What would be, before we jump in uh, to the next segment, we're going to dig into some on, on some fishing. I'm just curious, you know, if somebody else was out here listening and they wanted to, you know, do kind of what you did, jump off and go all in on their passion, what what would you tell them? It's not easy, but it's 100% worth it. So, you know, everybody's life or where they're at in life is different. So you you just need to, one, sit back, step back and, you know, look at where you're at, look at where you really want to be, see how much work and time you think it's going to take to make that happen and um and and just figure it out i mean most not everybody but most everybody can can make those changes um you're going to have to tighten the belt for a while so you're going to have to you know be willing to um li- live a little bit less you know live live at a little bit less expenses that 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 you're used to you know but but you can make those things happen and 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 nowadays with you know social media and stuff it's it's a it's a lot easier to build a company because you can reach out to so many more people nowadays, and uh, and spread the word if you're doing something good. So, um, you know whether it's guiding or a product based company, like just just plan it out. Be smart. Know that it's going to take longer than you think it's going to. Know that it's going to 
be a lot harder um, work than you think it's going to be, but know that it's completely possible and any, anybody can pull it off if, if that's really what you want to do. Perfect. That's awesome. And yeah, this is uh, very inspiring. And I think I'm not sure where I first heard about you and, you know, the company, but obviously you're doing a good job getting the word out there because, you know, we're kind of on, you know, the, the West side of the country and, um, you know, there's no question um, people are talking about you. So, so that's great. Let, let's jump into a little bit on uh, redfish. We've touched on this topic in the past and, you know, you being a guide for uh, a, a quite a few years now, I think you're, uh, you can kind of shed some light on this. So if we are heading out uh, your, to your neck of the woods, um, take us to the water. What, what are we looking at to bring us there and talk about um, what we need to think about if we're making a trip over there? Sure. So, uh, and again, I'm, I'm in, in uh, southeastern North Carolina. So uh, that area is called the Crystal Coast. But I mean, you can fish redfish from, you know, a couple hours north of here. You can sight fish redfish, you know, all the way to Texas, right? So, but in the southeast, generally, um, there's a couple different ways to fish redfish. And, and mostly I'm talking about your fish that are, you know, 18 to 30 inches uh, inshore. Um, in shallow water that we're sight fishing. A lot of these fisheries have the bigger bull drum fisheries in the sounds and out in the ocean where you can fish for 30 or 40 pounders, but that's that's very different. Um, so mostly, most through the Southeast, you can fish redfish year round. So it's, it's one of the few species that's accessible 12 months a year sight fishing on fly. Um, but in the wintertime, generally in the Southeast and in, in North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, um, our water gets cold, gets down in the, the 40s and 50s, um, and the water gets really clear. And so this is kind of December through March, pretty much. Um, and that time of year when it gets cold and clear, and most of the bait has left um, the marsh or the sounds and headed offshore or headed south for the winter, these fish school up. So, you know, that time of year when, you know, December to March, we can fish these fish in the marsh in six to 12 inches of water in schools of anywhere from a few dozen to a couple hundred. And we've had times where, you know, you can be pulling through 10 inches of crystal clear water, come around the corner and have 500 to a thousand redfish, you know, about 25 to 30 inches just sitting there with their, with their backs out of the water. Um, not not tailing, but just sitting there warming up, trying to get warmed up in the sun. So um, that's one of my favorite ways to fish these fish in the Carolinas. Um, we don't generally fish early in the morning or late in the evening. You want warmth, you want sunshine, you want low wind. So you know you can put the boat in at 10 a.m. and and be done by 3 p.m. Fish that low tide. The the downside to fishing those redfish in the winter time is that since they are schooled up in such large schools for protection. Um, because there's dolphins and other things that will try to eat them in the wintertime. Um, the way I like to say it is 98% of the fish are in 2% of the marsh. So you can go miles and not see a sign of life in the wintertime, but then you'll find that one Creek or that one bay that way back there, you know, a couple bends back, there's a large school. So, um, you kind of have to know where those fish are in the wintertime. But the good news is once you find them, if you baby those schools, you know, you go to a school of 300 fish and you catch three or four on fly and you notice those fish starting getting nervous and, and, and a little bit, you know, shy of that fly landing, then you back off and you go to the next school. If you do that, those fish will stay there for months at a time. As long as they're not harassed, they want to, they, they found somewhere that's 
two degrees warmer than the other creeks. It's got a little bit of food in it. They want to stay there. So we try to keep those fish there and we try to stay as hush as possible because, you know, a couple other guys find that out that school can, can vanish on you. Um, in the springtime, so around May, the water starts to warm up. The water gets a little bit dirtier in the southeast and just from algae and rain runoff and things like that. And those fish start to break up. So we start fit. We, we know where those large schools of fish are and they just kind of start falling apart into schools of two dozen schools of a dozen groups of six. And then over, you know, a month or so period up until around June, they're breaking apart and spreading apart. Usually by June. Now these fish are spread out throughout the marsh. So now it's half the fish are in 25% of the marsh and half the fish are spread out in the other three quarters of the marsh. So it's finding those areas that hold, uh, have good habitat and good food and, and protection where those fish will hide out and, and, and work those bays and creeks. And, and that's, that's throughout the whole summer. Now those fish are more aggressive. So on your higher tides on fly, um, you can get up in the grass and you can fish those fish in the summertime. Uh, you can fish small poppers, gurgler flies, things like that to get their attention when the, when you're fishing in two or three foot of water at low tide, early in the morning, late in the evenings, um, you can look for those fish crawling around in the mud, sometimes with their backs out of the water and sight cast those fish. Um, and then, you know, my favorite thing to do during the, during the summertime, basically from May through September or October are the tailing redfish. Um, and this is basically this, this type of tailing redfish fishery happens, um, from maybe an hour North of, of where I fish all the way down to Northern Florida, like Jacksonville, St. Augustine area. And this is when the, the Spartina grass, which is your salt marsh cord grass, that, that green two, three foot tall grass you see growing all along the marshes on the East coast. When you get a full or a new moon and you get an extra six inches to an extra foot, foot and a half of water that comes for a couple days in a row on those tides, that grass that's normally dry 98% of the time is now flooded and inundated with water. And now that there's six to 12 inches of water on those grass flats. Um, there are fiddler, fiddler crabs that live on those grass flats that, that burrow that are, you know, st- they want to stay dry. They're more of a land crab. Uh, their, their homes get flooded out and those redfish know it. And on those big full tides, full moon tides like that, they will crawl up into the grass. And that's when you get that tailing redfish scenario where, you know, you're pulling through this grass. you got a couple hours when the tide's up in the grass and you look across 200 feet away and you see that mm. big golden tail <laughs> waving at you. And that's, that's the most exciting way I think you can fish these redfish um, because it is, it is fully stalking and hunting your prey. It's like, it's like trying to stalk an elk with a yeah. bow and arrow or something like that. Um, and the cool thing is, you know, unlike on low tide or in the winter where those fish, there's no guarantee if they're in a feeding mode or not. If that fish is up on the grass in the summertime tailing, he's, he's eating right then. He's trying to dig a crab out of its burrow. So it completely comes down to how stealthy and how accurate you can cast to basically you know, it's like sliding a plate out from somebody that are getting ready to eat a steak and, and sliding a cheeseburger in front of it and trying to convince them to eat that <laughs> instead without spooking them and blowing them out. So you always get a reaction. It's either a good reaction or a bad reaction, but you know, you know what you did to that fish. You either, you know, scared the snot out of them or you tricked them and, and you got it close enough and you fed that fish. So it's a very exciting way to fish. And then in the fall, those fish start to group back up uh, fattening up for the winter. And then they, uh, they go back into that schooled up mode in the winter time. Perfect. Yeah. That was a great summary uh, throughout the year. So 
you know, if I was coming out there, it sounds like, I mean, gosh, all these sound pretty good, but I mean, if you, what, what would be the one spot, if you had to say the one time of year that you really love, is it, is it the tailing or, or what, what would be the yeah. one? Yeah. Yeah. Especially if I'm inviting people to come out, um, one, because it's just, you know, it, it's so visual and it's so exciting that it's, it's kind of like tarpon fishing where like, you know, if you jump a tarpon, you know, even if you didn't land that tarpon, it's exciting. It's the same thing. Well, you know, I saw, I saw 15 tailing redfish, but, and they were right in front of me and I, I couldn't fool them. And I, I kept, I blew them out and I, I missed a hook set, but I got to see that. So it's still exciting for people to see. It's very visual, but also the cool thing is I can, you know, in the summertime or looking forward, I can look two or three years in the future and look at the tide charts and say, oh, well, you know, Thursday, August 17th, 2024 looks like a great tide. Um, that'd be a great day to come fish it. And your weather's pretty consistent in the summertime. The wintertime, as good as the fishing can be, that's a little bit better for people who live, you know, within a couple hours. Because in North Carolina in January, you can get three days in a row that it's 65 degrees and sunny and calm. And then the, the following three days, it's 35 degrees and it's blowing 25 miles an hour and there's sleet falling. So that that's, that's one of those where it's hard to plan out to come. But I would absolutely say um, June, July. August, September is a fantastic time to come fish the Carolinas for redfish in yeah, more than one way. Yep, exactly. So, and September is kind of uh, going to be upon us pretty quick. So if it was, if we were, if I was going to pop out there in September, we could, uh, you could literally go to the tide uh, chart and just say, okay, here is a good day to come out sort of thing. Yep, absolutely. I'd say here's three days. This is the best one. This is the second best one. This is the third best one, all based on the height of that tide and the time of day that that tide is happening. Yeah. And what to describe that a little bit. So, so we're looking for, uh, how high of a tide or what, if somebody's looking right now and they're thinking, okay, I'm going to plan a trip either right now or next year, what talk about the tides and all the other uh, variables. Sure. Um, well, the hard part is that, you know, the tide I'm looking at here in Swansboro is a different tide height number than, you know, just 45 minutes South and, in New River or 45 minutes north in Beaufort. Every area, you know, every tide um, location, tide spot is going to have a different tide height. Um, so basically, it does take a little bit of investigation. Like, for example, here in, in you know, in my area, it's a 2.7 is that magic number for me as far as 2.7 foot above sea level. But if you go up to Beaufort, that's just 45 minutes north, they need a 3.7. Um, and they get that 3.7 on the same day we get a 2.7. It's just got to do with where, how far out you are jutted out on the coastline, you know, the shape of the coastline, how far out into the ocean you're, you are when that tidal swell comes in. Also, how big is the inlet that's bringing the water into the marsh and how big of an area does it have to flood? If you've got a small inlet and a large area to flood, you don't get much tidal change. If you get a very large inlet and you get a small area to flood, you get a much higher tidal change. Um, you know, we're talking about two to three, four foot tides here in North Carolina. If you go down to uh, like Hilton Head, South Carolina, or if you go into Georgia, they get six to eight foot tides on the same days that we get two to three foot tides. So the the best thing to do would be to look at a tide chart for a certain area. And then if you want to do those flood tides for tailing fish, just look through all those high tide numbers for the month and find the the four or five that have the highest numbers. And those are probably going to be what it takes to flood um, flood the grass flats in that area. Um, that being said, you've still got to find those grass flats. So 
you know, Google Earth can can get you so far as far as looking at, you know, on a satellite image, what looks like a good area to fish for tailors. But the reality is the best thing to do is just get out there in the boat or get out, you know, if you've got an area where you can drive down along the water and look for that flooded grass, because it's it's a certain type of grass, it's a certain type of fl- flat, you know, they're not all over the place. There's specific ones. And, you know, I've spent years trying to figure out some of these flats and one flat will be on fire one day and dead the next day. So it's, you, you can't just write one off because it didn't happen one day. The next day, it could be awesome, you know, if the fish were swimming by when that one flooded. So there's a lot that goes into it, but, you know, just look at the highest tides for the month and then, um, you know, then, then, then start investigating that area and look for some, some, some grass flats that are up along the, the tree line. I mean, these are, you know, these are places that are, you know, on the mainland or the, or on the beach side. I mean, literally these fish will come tail under the live oak trees and under the pine trees. So you're looking for those areas as far up as possible that are dry all the time, even on normal high tide, but are going to flood up on, on that big full moon or new moon tide. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's awesome. Okay. So, you know, again, we're, we're, let's take us to the water. So we're kind of out there and you mentioned, you know, say there's some fish tailing there a couple hundred yards away. Uh, first let's talk about the, the rods since you've got these, you've got your own rods. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah. So what are you using What for uh, just typically these, these fish? Yeah. Uh, in general for tailing fish, we're fishing, um, nine foot, seven or eight weight rods. Um, I love a seven weight rod for, for tailing fish. Um, and you could even do a six weight. It's, it's not, the rod is not so much um, decided for what you need to fight that fish. You know, these fish are bulldogs, but they don't make terribly long runs. The, the weight of the rod is more important for, um, throwing bulky, heavy weighted flies and dealing with wind. So I like a seven, but if you haven't fished saltwater a lot, I'd recommend an eight, um, because you're throwing crab patterns and you're throwing shrimp patterns that have heavy lead eyes that need to, you know, overweighted eyes that help you that fly fall down between the grass blades to get down to the bottom. You know, this is some thick grass that these fish are in uh, to get down at eye level with those fish. Um, so seven or eight weights, um, a little bit aggressive or overweighted uh, fly line. You can fit, you know, if you had an eight weight, you can throw a standard eight weight line, but a little bit shorter, more aggressive head and a, um, you know, slightly overweighted line, which a lot of a lot of fly lines nowadays, if you get like a redfish line or a flats line, it's already a half to three quarter overweighted, you know, even though it's not labeled that way. So that'll allow you to throw those heavier flies. It'll allow you to deal with the breeze. And most importantly with redfish, um, you know, everybody wants to throw a hundred foot with their fly rod. The reality is some of these fish will pop up 10, 20 feet in front of you and surprise you. Those are the hardest casts to make. You know, when that fish pops up, 20 feet in front of you and you've got two or three seconds to get that fly in front of him before he looks up and sees you, you need something that's going to load pretty well. So, you know, maybe not the fastest action rod, maybe a more moderate or softer tip fly rod, or even a, you know, a medium action rod would work well on these fish too for those short casts. And then overlining with a little bit more of aggressive floating head, you know, maybe an eight foot leader. Um, and, and that's another thing that's real important down here with turning over those big flies is I like to build my own leaders. Um, a lot of the, the pre-made, um, pre-made knotless tapered leaders that you buy that work great for trout or bass with smaller flies. They're not stiff enough to turn over these big, heavy, uh, redfish flies in the wind. Um, so building your own leader out of a uh, hard mono 
So usually I'll use like a piece of 40, a piece of 30, and a piece of 20-pound hard mono, and then maybe some 20-pound fluorocarbon. That's a lot better for turning over these heavy flies and getting them out in front of the redfish instead of having your leader just fall into a pile right in front of you. So that's kind of the, the standard setup for these fish. That's perfect. And on the leader, uh, so yeah, you're, you're so eight foot standard. And what, um, just as far as types of leader, the brands and stuff like that, what do you, does it, does it matter much? It, it really doesn't matter. Um, right now I, I'm using scientific anglers, hard mono. Um, you can, you, you know, Rio makes some, um, there, there's a lot of different hard monos. So any, any of the, uh, I think hatch makes some, so any of the different different fly rod brands, or you can just go in a tackle shop and buy like Mason's Hard Mono, which is the the original company that did that stuff. It's super cheap. You can buy like spools for a couple bucks a piece and make you know fifty liters over the next couple of years, you know, for twenty bucks. It's 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 real affordable. So you know, I just keep I keep a spool of 60, 50, 40, 30, 25, 20, and sixteen, and it lasts me forever. That's right. That's right. Okay. And, uh, and then, uh, just in the, on this, staying on this track a little bit. So as far as the, uh, the line, uh, you mentioned kind of some, some of the saltwater, what, what line are you using? What would you recommend if somebody wants to just pick up all the gear today? Sure. Um, I, I'm personally a fan of scientific angler lines. They work well for me and I, I, I know what they have and I know it works well for me, but, but Rio's great. Cortland's great airflow. They all make great lines, but as far as Scientific angler lines for redfish, I'm usually either throwing, um, if I'm making, thinking I'm going to make longer casts, their standard saltwater line's great. If I'm going to make shorter casts, I really like their warm water redfish line. It's a shorter, more aggressive head. And then I really love their grand slam line, which is also a short, aggressive head. That's that's designed more for permit, bonefish, and tarpon in the keys. But that grand slam, grand slam fly line and the uh Redfish warm water line are two fantastic lines for turning over those heavier, bulkier flies. They can handle a short cast, but they do just great if you got a fish that pops up at 60 feet and you can bomb it out to them too. And now let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Togan's Fly Shop, providing superior quality products at an affordable price, an amazing resource for fly tying materials, tools, and fly fishing accessories. Togans has you covered when looking for unique in-house products, but also supports and supplies materials and tools from other leading fly brands you know and trust. Togans is now offering their mystery fly tying box where they simplify the process for you in choosing materials. You're only one click away from these hand-picked subscription tying boxes that are packed with value at almost half the cost. And I recently made a order through Togans and the experience was perfect. After a uh, recent trip uh, nipping for trout, I had to replace my tungsten beads and some jig hooks and a few other items. The products arrived in a couple of days from Togans with a nice little card, a bonus value, and a welcome note from the Togans family. Since 2005, Togans has been over-delivering on price and customer service, so it's time to discover for yourself what the buzz is all about. Head over to wetflyswing.com Togans and take a look at their diverse selection of products today. You can support this podcast by clicking over to take a look at Togans online. That's wetflyswing.com slash T-O-G-E-N-S. Togans. Now let's get back to the rest of the show. And and let's just take it that fish that pops up again. So now we've got the gear and we're kind of getting dialed in for that fish. What... Um, 
you know, let's go back to that moment. How are you preparing? How, how close are you trying to get if the fish is, say, 60 feet or 100 feet out? What, you know, give us some tips. I was going to be on your boat. What should I be thinking about? Yeah. So, you know, if, if we're like in a tailing fish scenario where, you know, we're in the grass and we see that fish pop up 100, 200 feet away, I want to get you as close as I can to that fish where you can, or as far away from that fish that you can make a very accurate, comfortable cast. Um, if that means you can hit it at 50 feet, awesome. If it means you need to be 25 feet away from that fish, we're going to get 25 feet away from that fish, understanding that now there's a, a slightly higher chance that he's going to realize we're there, but it's more important to get sneak close to that fish than it is to try to make too long of a cast and throw the leader over his back and spook him or hit him with the fly or, or throw nowhere near him. So um, there's, there's a point when you're pulling a skiff to a tailing fish where you're hustling and pushing as hard as you can. And then when you get within that probably 100, 120 feet range, now you're slowing down and, and you're like an egret walking in the water and you're trying to slide as close as possible. If I've got a right-hand caster, I'm trying to give them a 10 or 11 o'clock shot off the bow of that boat. So I'm trying to turn that boat and line it up perfect. Um, the whole time I would be talking to you and saying, all right, let's look at him. Okay, he just popped up. He's facing left. You know, we don't see his face, but get an idea of where his face is. Okay, he's not moving, so we're going to have to make this cast really close to this fish. You know, versus, okay, now he's dropped down and he's crawling across that flat looking for another crab. Now we're going to have to lead that fish more. So it's a lot of a lot of that conversation and those decisions and that distance is based on how that fish is acting. So we want to get where we can make an accurate cast, but, you know, if that fish is, if he's crawling you know, at, at a medium speed, we may need to throw 10 feet out in front of him and a couple feet beyond him um, and just wait and then strip that fly across. And basically, you know, he's the redfish has a very small, very small world that he's focused on when he's eating. It's not much bigger than a pie plate. And so you need to bring that fly in that range. So we kind of talk about wiping the fish's nose or painting a mustache on that fish with that fly. And so, you know, if he's crawling along, you know, you may throw five, 10 feet out in front of him and two feet beyond him and then line that fly up and just bring it two inches in front of his face where he can't resist it. He knows he's got two seconds to commit to that fly and not investigate it, not sniff it out, or he's going to lose out. And a lot of times that fish will, will eat it there. If that fish has popped up and he's almost fully vertical or at a 45 and he's tailing, now we're looking and going, okay, his, his focus area is like a six inch diameter circle in front of his face. You're going to have to try to lay that leader a couple inches in front of his face or the tippet, but cast that fly a couple feet beyond him so it doesn't splash right on his head and spook him. And then you're going to have to strip it up and get it in that zone and just little half inch, inch pops, trying to keep that fly in his zone as much as possible because he's looking down a hole trying to find that crab. And you're trying to get him to look up and go, oh, here's one right here and get him to eat that fly. So it, it all based on, it's, it's based on what that fish does. Um, sometimes we'll cast a foot away from the fish and see if he reacts. And if he ignores it, then you cast six inches. We've had fish that we've cast to one time laying at two feet away and he blew off the flat. We've had fish that we've cast to 15 times and he's ignored it. And we finally just ping the fish and hit him with the fly and he turns around and eats it off of his side. So every fish is different. And, and the more you see him and the more you see how they react, the, um, the, the easier it is to kind of make those judgment calls. Wow. So you've literally, the fish ha wouldn't take and you literally hit the fish with the fly and it turned and, and ate it. Yes. And we've also done that by accident before. And the fish has also ate it. 
hitting the fish with a fly works uh, fantastically about 10% of the time. Yep. And then the other 90% of the time, he peels off the flat like a <laughs> like a submarine shooting off the flat. So, Scares all the fish. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's happened. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, and um, so it sounds like, yeah, this is a case-by-case basis as far as the stripping, the type of stripping you might do, either a half inch or sometimes, yeah, if, you've, if, you're, if you're 10 feet out, you're adjusting it, trying to get it just ready so when he comes by, your fly is just sitting there. And do you always want it to be... I mean, are they taking it when it's moving? Or are they taking it when it's dropping? When, when, when are they eating that fly? Um, the, it depends a little bit on the situation. Basically, um, I try to match that. They're, they'll take it when it's sitting still. If they've just seen it move, they'll take it when it just starts to move. They'll take it as it's, as that fly's being stripped and they'll, they'll take it as it drops. The, the main thing, um, the easiest thing to do with that fish is just try to match the, the speed that you're moving that fly with the speed that fish is moving. So if that fish is cruising, you know, he's, he's moving at a steady pace. You're going to be stripping that fly at a steady pace to try to keep it out in front of him as long as possible. If that fish is barely moving, he's just sitting there looking, then, you know, we'll strip it. We'll wait two seconds. We'll do another little half inch strip, wait two seconds and try to keep it in his zone as long as possible. So they'll take it, you know, there's not that much of the meeting and on a, when it's dropping, because honestly we're fishing in only a couple inches of water. So that fish is almost on the, I mean, that fly is almost on the bottom the whole time. It's just, you know, they just want to see, you know, imagine a crab or a shrimp, you know, moving, stopping, moving, stopping. They'll eat it either way. You just, you just need to try to keep it moving, but in their little zone of their little, their little bubble for as long as possible. Gotcha. And I know, and I don't think you're like uh, too critical on the exact pattern, right? You just kind of just generally getting, getting the ball, the ball game. Um, is that, you know, as far as fly patterns, is that uh, you wouldn't say is super critical? What would you recommend there? No, not at all. Um, well, first off, you could probably catch everything here in coastal North Carolina on a chartreuse and white clouser and never tie another fly. <laughs> so fly tying is it's just as much for the, for the angler as it is for, for trying to fool that fish. Um, when we're, you know, if we're looking for fish that are moving and cruising at low tide, things like that, um, we will fish more bait fish patterns or shrimp patterns that we can cover water with and move a little more quickly. When we have these scenarios with tailing fish, for example, when they're sitting in the grass and they're staring at something that's not moving much, then we do get a little bit more specific with patterns, uh, mainly crab and shrimp patterns. But really these fish are very opportunistic. So they may come on that flat thinking fiddler crabs, but they'll eat a blue crab or a stone crab or a green tail shrimp or, or, or whatever presents itself on that flat. So generally I try to give them flies that can kind of cover a lot of those scenarios. I just kind of buggy or crustacean patterns. They could be stripped to look like a shrimp or sit still and look like a crab, maybe even strip fast and look like a, a mud minnow. Um, as I'm talking about, I think a lot about like some of the Tim Borsky patterns where, you know, or, or a Quan or something like that. So if it has any combination of eyes on a stalk, um, rubber legs, a horn has the right natural colors, the, the tans and the browns and the barred patterns. Um, we, we try to always tie the, for these fish that are tailing or looking for crabs or shrimp, we tie the eyes or sorry, yes, the eyes on the fly, the lead eyes, the dumbbell eyes. We tie them back towards the eye of the hook so that when that fly drops down and sits, it looks like a shrimp or a crab that's crawling backwards, kind of sitting up in a fighting position, looking at them. So those eye stalks and those those rubber legs are kind of facing towards that 
towards that fish in like a fight or flee type scenario. And then always a weed guard on them because we are fishing in, you know, around oysters and, and Spartina grass and, and uh, some pretty thick cover. So generally just something that elicits the instinctual reaction of those fish, you know, Oh, it's got eyes. It's got a horn. It's, it's looking at me. It's moving, right. I'm not sure what it is, but it looks good. So I'm going to eat it. That That's kind of the deal, but you can throw a gold, a gold spoon at these redfish and it looks like nothing that they would see out there on the flat in the marsh, but it's got a wobble like an injured fish and the sun hits it and it flashes like a, a bait fish that turns on its side and catches the sun and it just clicks it triggers that instinct for that fish and he'll eat that spoon even though it doesn't look like anything that he would ever see in nature so more of it's just about triggering that natural instinct the to remind that fish that he's the prey or he's the predator and that you know that fly in front of him looks like some type of prey for him that's perfect. Um, and I was, as you were talking about getting the fly there, obviously casting is part of it. I had uh, Ed uh, Javorowski on in ep- a recent episode. He, t- he has a new book out on casting and he went in, he talked about how it's never, you know, it's never one type of cast. I, I'm curious for you, is there any tips you would give somebody if, again, I'm, I'm on the boat with you or somebody's on the boat with you, they're getting ready to make that cast. They got to get it with a pie plate, which isn't always yeah. easy with wind. I mean, what would you tell somebody getting prepared for that? Well, uh, first thing is that um, the number one thing for people to learn before they come down here is to try to learn to double haul. Um, if I have somebody on the boat that that's never double hauled before, it's that's too it's too late at that point to try to teach them because now their their focus on trying to catch that fish is kind of messed up because now they're now they're focused on well I got to learn all these new things that I haven't done before so. You know, prepping, you know, the weeks ahead of time for to learn the double haul is great. And it's not just to add distance or to deal with the wind, but it also reduces your amount of false casts. Um, a lot of the fish that we target, you're, you know, that fish has got a timer on him, whether he's got 10 seconds till he turns or moves away or spooks, or if he's got two seconds, you've got a certain amount of time to present that fly. So if you can double haul and, and cast that fish in one false cast or two false casts, you know, your, your, your chances are so much higher of feeding that fish versus having to make, you know, five or six or seven false casts to that fish. Um, one of the things I would say is that, you know, don't practice for long distance as, as being the most important thing. Uh, more importantly, practice for accuracy and speed of delivery. You know, so you're out in your backyard and, you know, imagine a fish popping up. It's not about trying to make a 70 foot cast. It's about, you know, making a 25 or 30 foot cast in about two seconds from the time you saw that fish, um, just before that fish spooks and moves on. You have, you know, you got limited time with each of those opportunities. Um, another thing is, you know, making sure that you're shooting the line um, to that fish. So all these fish, when they're sitting up in six or 12 inches of water with their backs or their tails out, they're very aware that a bald eagle or an osprey or an egret could come over and, and take a swing at them. So they're always looking for shadows from above. So we try not to ever false cast over those fish. You know, you can false cast a couple times to get your left and right accuracy, but you want to shoot those last five or 10 feet of line to that fish. So he doesn't see a shadow come over top of him. Um, and another thing that I, I guess one other thing I think is real important is I see a lot of fly anglers, you know, if they are right-handed and, and they're shooting the line with their left hand as they're casting and hauling with their left hand, when they shoot that line, a lot of anglers will let, um, they'll open up their hands and they'll just let the line go. 
And so the, the fly goes out and the fly lands. And then the first thing they have to do is they have to take their eyes off of that fish, look back down, see their line, pick their line back up with their left hand, and then put it between their right fingers and the cork to strip. And when you did that, you wasted a few seconds, but you also took your eye off that fish. So I try to always, an easy tip is to learn to start shooting the line through your fingers and always having control. So go from pinching your fingers to making a loop with your fingers and letting the line shoot through it. And you can actually use that to kind of feather that, that cast down to not overshoot the fly past that fish and to soften the landing of that fly. But when you do that, you instantly are ready to start stripping and you never took your eyes off of that fish. Um, that works great in a lot of scenarios. You know, if we're fishing false albacore off the beach and they're running 30 miles an hour blitzing through a school of silver sides or anchovies, like a lot of those fish will eat that fly within the first two seconds that it hits the water if it's being stripped right. But if you wait a couple seconds to pick your fly line up, the fish are already 10 feet past your fly and they're, they're still chasing the bait. So, you know, always having control of that fly line and, and being able to strip it the second, you know, that your fly lands and, and keeping your rod tip low and, and stripping right away, that, that'd be the, probably the biggest, easiest tip I could give people um, when it comes to casting the redfish and other fish on the coast. Those, those are amazing. Yeah, that's a huge tip on the line control because that's uh, definitely, yeah, letting loose and casted, you know, try to cast. I mean, it's about control, it sounds like. And I love that you said the double haul. I'll make note, if I can, in the show notes, um, that Ed Javorowski episode. I think it was around, it was towards the end, a minute and uh, about a minute and 10 into the episode. He broke down some tips on how to do the double haul. And he talked about how, you know, you start you know, you start out, you, your, your haul matches your rod casting motion, right? So you, you kind of start slow and then you go fast, 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 and then stop, right? You know, and then same thing on the, the second haul. So I'll, I'll, if I can, he, he provides some good tips there for anybody that's struggling with the haul, which is, is not easy to do, especially when you're trying to make it to a, you know, within a, right in front of the fish's face. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Um, well, it, it, I mean, I feel like we have a pretty good, uh, uh, start on getting ready for this. Anything else you want to shed some light on as far as, you know, again, somebody's coming out there, maybe they've, they've been out before, but they're trying to get a few more tips. Is it, um, I mean, I guess, it, you know, getting a guide, that's probably a big part of this. Yeah. I, I would say a couple tips as far as, uh, fishing with a guide I and mean, you can do any of this stuff DIY. It just takes long. You know, you, the, the biggest point of getting a guide is shortening your learning curve on how to, you know, that guide has seen a, a thousand seen 10,000 fish and how they've reacted so they can talk you through it and they can see what that fish is doing and tell you how to improve. Um, and they can put you in the places that have the most fish. It's just shortening that learning curve, not saying you can't do it on your own. If you've got, you know, if you're down at, at the beach for two weeks, then absolutely try to figure it out yourself. That's awesome too. I would say though, when you're talking with a fishing guide, um, be very, you know, the hardest thing I have to deal with is, is expectations somebody has unrealistic expectations and then they come fishing with me and they could have what I think was a fantastic day, but because somebody else sold them something that was unrealistic, it didn't meet their expectations. And then they kind of felt down. They're like, wow, we only, we only had shots at 50 fish and we only caught five on fly. And I'm like, well, that's pretty awesome actually. You know, so the, the biggest thing is communication with your guide. Um, if your guide doesn't ask um, this, when you talk to him on the phone or your potential guide, you know, tell them exactly what you imagine the scenario being. Say, this this is what I want to do. Um, and, you know, if you only want to fly fish and you don't want to pick up a spinning rod, make sure they know that, you know, and, and communicate those things and then see if that guide feels that he can honestly um, 
give you those things because when you go on fishing with a guide, I feel like you're buying a product, right? So you don't want to order a red t-shirt and then they send you a blue t-shirt. It's not what you asked for. So communicate what you want and make sure that they can, you know, fulfill that. And if not, see what they can offer you and see if it's something that's interesting. And if not, then then talk to another guide. Um, and then when you get out on the water, communication with your guide is really important because, you know, that's his job to, to stand on the back of that boat and find that fish for you. But make sure you understand what, you know, what he's saying when he's calling, if if he starts talking about ten o'clock and eleven o'clock and 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 hundred feet and and you don't know what that stuff is, let him know. Like you know, whenever I have somebody on the front of my boat, first thing I'll do is say, you know, are you familiar with the clock face? If not, we'll talk about it. If you if you are familiar with it, I'll say, okay, give me a shot at forty feet at eleven o'clock, and I'll be like, okay, and then we'll just try to fine tune and make sure that we're speaking the same language. You know, I mean, that's even for me, like, you know, my three o'clock is different than the person on the boat's three o'clock. So I have to make sure that, you know, we're speaking the same language and they understand because time is limited and you want to give them those opportunities. Um, So, yeah, I just think communication beforehand and during the fishing trip um, is 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 the biggest thing. Just be honest about what you want to get out of the trip and and see if they can do that for you. Perfect. Yeah, that's always the. That's always the uh, the factor I've heard. You know, we've heard a lot about just expectations and and balancing those. So, you know, again, if I was to come out there, somebody was to come out there on the boat, maybe they get a day trip or, or a, you know a trip with you, and then the next day they're gonna maybe the next rest of the week they're gonna DIY it. Um, I mean, can you do this uh, as far as a boat? Obviously, having a boat is is important. But rec- talk to somebody who's coming out there again and and the boats. What what would they need, or can they do it without a boat? Sure. Um, you know. It- for me, you know, the type of fishing we're doing where we're trying to get skinny enough to sight fish these fish, we, we're fishing out of technical polling skiffs. We're, we're push-pulling that boat. We're fishing very shallow. It's a very silent boat. That doesn't mean that a guy from a few hours away can't come with his John boat and his trolling motor um, or even not having a trolling motor. He, You know, there's other potential ways. You can find areas that have, you know, shallow creeks that are bordered with a you know, a deeper, a deeper hole that holds three or four foot of water and you can go anchor along there and you may just have to be patient and wait versus, you know, pushing forward and stalking these fish. Um, a great way to, to look for these fish is in a kayak and, you know, my hometown and, and most, most places down the coast have kayak rentals. You can rent them for, you know, 10 bucks an hour or whatever and go pay 50 bucks and, and rent a kayak for, for five hours and then just go start kayaking those areas um, looking for those signs of redfish, looking for not, you know, they only tail on certain tides and certain days, but look, learn to look for the, the wakes that they push and how the wake of a redfish is different than the wake of a mullet or another fish. Look for the mud puffs that they make when they spook and, you know, all that stuff. And then maybe that kayak isn't necessarily to fly fish from, but maybe that kayak can get them to some flats that they can then get out and wade, you know, and get away from boat traffic and, and just cover ground. And, and I would say, you know, really time on the water is, is the biggest thing. So, you know, if you go hit a spot, find somewhere where you can get out and wade it safely. And if you walk around for, you know, 20 or 30 minutes and don't see a sign of a fish, go paddle to something that looks different, you know? And if you start to piece that puzzle together and go, okay, this lower tide, I'm seeing them, these fish, you know, kind of 10, 20 feet off these edges of the oyster bars, then that's what you're going to start looking for. Or, hey, we spooked a couple of fish out of the, the the flooded Spartina grass on the edges of it, then start hitting those spots and just kind of building from that. So 
I think you can you can do you can do it on your on on your own on foot. Um, you can do it with a kayak. You can do it with a small boat. You just have to be willing to adjust and know that um, it's going to be a little bit harder. But you know, I love DIY fishing, so I, I tell anybody who's got the time to do it to absolutely go out there and and spend the time. You're gonna you're gonna have a great time with a guide, but you're probably gonna learn more or understand more when you do it on your own, even though it takes longer because you are forced to actually make those decisions and 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 calculate those different factors and, and figure out what you had to do to, to, to find those fish. There you go. And, uh, yeah, we actually have a, um, we have a kayak episode coming up. I think it's next month. Uh, J- Jackson kayaks. We had, uh, one of the people there who dug into some of the, I mean, there's tons of uh, custom high knees boats. The kayaks are amazing now, right? You can get like full on, uh, you know, <laughs> I guess they're probably as close to a skiff as you could imagine, uh, you know, as ever. But, um, so yeah, I'll link out to that when that comes out as well. Um, I'm going to jump into, uh, we've got a little segment to wrap this up, the, the 222, um, top tips, tools, and resources. But before we get there, I wanted to go back to something you said at the start. And um, this is kind of uh, interesting and powerful because I think a lot of people deal with, you know, the depression thing, right? And and I have, I mean, I've got a family member who literally I haven't talked to in years, um, you know, because they're dealing with, uh, you know, some of this stuff. And we have it in our family as well. Talk about that. Just bring us to, you know, and it sounds like that was something you you made it through, obviously, Um Take us to that moment. Talk a little bit about what that was like, and maybe uh, some something that somebody else, if they're dealing with it, how they might be able to to work with that. Sure. Yeah. It it that's a it's a kind of weird, sticky, touchy subject because it's, it's different for everybody. Um, one of the things I think that um, people who haven't dealt with things like that, um, they they kind of see the advertisements on the commercials where it's like you know, the person who you know can't get out of bed and they, and, and they can't function and they're weeks at a time, like just can't get out of the house. And, you know, I, you know, my, the depression that I've dealt with and, and anxiety and things over the years has it, I'm very functional with it. So it's very easy to put on a smiley face and, 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 and put on a show for people. So, and, and still at the same time, just be, you know, dealing with a lot of stuff inside. And, and it also, um, you know, depression can, it's not a constant thing. It can, you can very quickly, it's like a roller coaster. You know, you can be fine one hour and the next hour you just, you don't see, um, you don't see See your purpose on the planet. Yeah. You don't see your purpose. You don't see, um, a reason to go on. You, You think that the world is better off without you. Like it can come on and like, and, and literally like, you know, the next day you're fine or two hours later, something happens and, and, and you're, you get control of your mind. So that's the scary thing. I think for people who deal with that is that, you know, you, you hear about a lot of people who take their own lives and you're like, well, he's seen every, you know, I know people who have taken their lives and I'm like, man, they had an awesome life and they were always in a good mood. And it's just, you just don't know. So I think the, the main thing is, you know, for people who don't have it, don't assume that just because somebody um, seems to have everything figured out that they're not dealing with stuff. Um, and at the same time, like, you know, I, I luckily was able to, you know, kind of, I, I still deal with a ton of anxiety, but I was able to dig myself out by finding things that fulfilled me. My, you know, my source of my depression was looking at where I was in life versus where I felt that I should be in life. And that gap was too far. And that, that's what caused me a lot of pain is I just felt like I wasn't where I should be, but it could be completely different for somebody else. So, you know, just, I guess just 
you definitely don't want to leave it be. So it's either, you know, you either need to get professional help, um, you know, whether that's therapy or medication, or if you just need to change your life. And like, for me, it was just the direction. You can call it a midlife crisis. You can call it a realization that, you know, I don't know how much time I have and I wasn't, I was no longer on the track that I wanted to be. Um, but, you know, figure those things out. And and if you think it's something that you can change your situation, you know, give it a try. But if not, definitely don't be afraid to to reach out. I think a lot more people, um, the more people I talk to, the the more I realize that there's a whole lot of people on this planet that are dealing with something that is, you know, that tears them up on the inside, whether it's something small or something huge. And, uh, you know, it, there, there's nothing to be ashamed of from it. It's just that that's a part of life. And, and the only thing I think to be ashamed of is to allow yourself to stay in that situation because there's always, you know, there's always greener grass on the other side and there's always light at the end of the tunnel. So, yeah. you know, do whatever it takes to, to, to get there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Th- thanks for, uh, shedding some light on that. I know. Yeah. Like I said, it's, uh, I think probably, I don't know if everybody, but it seems like, you know, you, you hear at least somebody that, you know, you've heard some stories about it going through it and, and yeah, if you haven't been in it, if you don't have it all that, you know, if you haven't dealt with it, it's hard to understand, you know, put yourself in their perspective. Um, and you know, like here we have, I mean, gosh, there's a lot of homeless around. Right. And obviously, you know, you might look at those people and, you know, kind of wonder why they don't just pick up their, you know, pull their pants up and get up there and, you know, start working, but it's not that easy. Right. Um, so Cool, John. Well, I appreciate uh, I appreciate that. Uh, let, let's take us out. Let's let's do this two twenty two. And we've talked about uh, actually most of this stuff here. But um, if, so flies it sounds like the clouser not critical as far as if we wanted to find a couple of flies online or something out there. Any any other uh, tips you give there? Yeah, sure. I mean, if, honestly, a redfish will eat most most anything that's found under like you know, the, the flats category, they'll eat the same flies a permit will eat. They'll eat the same flies a bonefish will eat, but a little bit larger. So, you know, we fish everything from, um, clousers and other bait fish patterns. Like you could fish a deceiver. You can, um, any, any streamer patterns. I love streamers that have, um, like zonker strips in them that have a lot of flow and a lot of movement. Um, you know, that are two or three inches long, look like a, you know, a small minnow, um, when the water's dirty, which happens a lot, don't be afraid of a lot of flash. I love like a copperhead fly, or I mean, we've taught tied clousers that are just pure gold and copper flashaboo and crystal flash. And, you know, redfish. If redfish were humans, they'd they'd be rap stars. And they'd have, <laughs> you know, they'd have they'd have twenty four inch rims and gold chains around their neck because they love flash. So there's nothing wrong with doing a lot of flash. Um, I would say you know any of your crab or shrimp patterns, your quans and your sliders, they work fantastic. Um, topwater redfish is a lot of fun. So like foam gurgler flies or crease flies or small poppers, um, all, all those things will work on redfish too. Um, you know, we have, have some natural colors and have some wild stuff. They will eat a pink and chartreuse fly like crazy if the water's muddy enough. So, so don't be afraid, afraid to have some variety and, and switch it up, but ha- find a fly you have faith in fish it until you know the fish have seen it and they have ignored it. And once you know, they've turned it down, then switch it up. Don't just cast and go, this is a great fly. They told me this is the one that works. I'm going to change it, even though I don't know if I've showed it to a fish. Make sure the fish see it, and if they don't want it, then offer them something else. Perfect, perfect. And what about uh, a couple more tips? You, you, you've noted a, a number here, but anything else you want to throw out there just to get us ready for this? Just, you know, just realize that it's, you know, expectations, again, know that if you're, if you're going out there, 
it's all you can practice and all you want in your backyard. You can read all you can or watch YouTube videos, but until you're really there and experience it and see when you present a fly to a fish a certain way and see how he reacts and then go, okay, a little bit of information for the memory bank. I'm going to make an adjustment. And until you're doing that stuff and, and spending time out there, you know, just be realistic and know that like that's that's where half the learning goes. It's great to prep for it, but but know that you know you're going out there, you're gonna you're gonna see just a beautiful part of the country. You might see alligators, you're gonna see egrets, you're gonna see otters and sea turtles and stingrays, and you're gonna see some fish and present them, and and you're probably not gonna catch that first one or the second or the fifth one you cast to, but you're gonna learn a little bit, and then you're gonna get to the point where it's gonna start happening for you. And then you just continue to gain experience for that. So just just being realistic. And and the cool thing about fly anglers, what I love about them is that they're all about the experience. It's they're not they don't rate the the enjoyment of a fishing trip by how much how many pounds of meat they can put in a cooler. You know, we look at it about the whole experience and and what we're learning from it and the growth we get from it and just the enjoyment of being out there in nature. And so you know, just go out and enjoy it for what it is and, and, and learn a little bit and just go from there. Yeah, no, that is a good point. I think that's, that is uh bottom of the line. We could talk all day about this, but getting on the water and just, you know, whether you're in a kayak on foot or, you know, in a skiff, just kind of, uh, yeah, find the fish, get to know where they're at and just try some different things. That's a great, great one. Um, what about resources as far as, you know, getting again, ready for this trip, um, books, magazines, uh, online websites, videos, anything you'd recommend somebody could just dig in more to the subject? Mm, I, I honestly think YouTube nowadays is probably the best resource for, for figuring this stuff out. Um, there's, I, I would say, uh, YouTube and podcasts. I'm, I'm a big fan of podcasts. So YouTube's going to show some, find, try to find those videos and just, just watch those casts of fish. I mean, there's a lot of guys out there with GoPros now filming, them on the front of a skiff casting to the fish and and look at that fly placement look how that fish reacts and look how they're stripping that fly and look at their hook set you know that's very important if you cast a fish and you can't hook them you know you've missed out on the last little very important piece of it and then podcast there's there's some great um if you search around there's some great local podcasts of that guides and and other anglers are putting out in the southeastern united states and, and they talk in depth about um about fly fishing for redfish and and they'll bring on other other guides and anglers. And I, I would say just soak up as much as you can. Um, you know, there's some good magazine articles and books out there. But I think YouTube and podcast nowadays are probably the my, my two go-to things for trying to figure out a new area. I, I love that you said podcast. That's that's perfect. Do you have do you have a name of one that comes to mind uh, that we could that we could uh, dig into? Um, yeah, I'll give a I'll give a plug for my uh, fishing guide that lives. Um, he, he guides about two hours South of me, but still in North Carolina and he's a fly fishing guide. Um, his podcast is called Eastern current and, uh, his name is, uh, Judd Brock and Eastern current is great. He brings, he talks about everything from, you know, redfish to speckled trout to albacore to flounder, but he brings on a different guest, um, at least once a week. So there's probably a hundred episodes out there where they talk specific about, you know, their favorite lures, their favorite tips, tactics, and things like that. Um, that would be probably be a go-to for me, whether you're living in South Carolina or you're fishing in South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, or Northern Florida, it's all similar enough that, um, you know, even though he guides in North Carolina, that that'd be a good one to pick up some, some good tips from. Perfect. Yeah. And I've listened to that one. I'll, I'll put a link to the show notes to that and everything else we talked about today. So, 
So we'll give uh, folks uh, some more. Uh, and I think you were on that. You have a, did you talk about Redfish on that podcast? Yeah, I, I was on there a few weeks ago. Yeah. Oh, there. Oh, recently. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So that, that'll be another good resource. Yeah. I'm always just trying to, to provide more, you know, we obviously dug into it today, but I know we didn't probably even come close to, you know, covering everything. So this is, this is great. Um, Okay, John. Well, hey, uh, you know, we've obviously you've got the rod and we'll send people out to uh, mauserflyfishing.com. Um, anything else in, you know, I guess coming up for you this next year, we're, we're kind of, feels like we're coming out of COVID, I think fully, but uh, what's new for you in the, the rest of this year? Um, just, just continuing to, to work on the, uh, the fly rod brand. Um, you know, we've got three series of rods out right now. Um, two that are more saltwater focused and one that's freshwater focused. Uh, continuing to fill those lines out with a few more weights and sizes that we don't currently have in there. And uh, just just a couple more things um, with the company that we're trying to um, get out and, and meet as many people as possible and try to give back as much as we can to the fly fishing community. So working on some some different things we can do charity-wise to help raise money for um, for some of the different programs and conservation-based organizations and, and fly fishing. So um, that's the main focus. Guiding is going fantastic for me. I'm so thankful for all my clients that come and fish with me. Um, they're helping me live the dream. And and just the other half of it, just pushing forward with a rod company, continuing to you know just try to put out as good a product as possible and give as best a customer service as we can and just continue to grow it on that side of things. That's perfect, John. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave, uh, I guess, the the continuation on the rod chat to a later time. Maybe when we get you on again, we can get an update of where things are going. I know you mentioned the new uh, trout rod you have coming out. Obviously, there's a lot of people that are trout fishermen as well listening to this. So so yeah, we'll just put a link and we'll, we'll check in with you here maybe next year. And, and uh, until then, uh, thanks for taking the time today and uh, providing all the information. Yeah, Dave, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to get on here and talk of listen to quite a few episodes and I love what you're doing and I, I appreciate it. And, and thank you for thinking of me. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links, everything else we covered today, head over to wetflyswing.com slash two five one. That's 251. Uh, please take a moment and subscribe. If you haven't yet, you can do this down in uh, whatever app you're listening to. Just click that subscribe button or maybe it's follow. I know they're changing things up. But this will make sure you get updated when our next episode goes live. And uh, I believe uh, next Tuesday uh, we have Russ Madden. Russ Madden is coming on. So that's definitely one. Is a goodie. Is a goodie you don't want to miss. So check that out. That's pretty much all I have for you today. I appreciate you sticking around till the, uh, the end here. And looking forward to catching up to you soon on the next podcast. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.